Welcome again to Timberwood Church Wednesday night study of uh, Nehemiah. We talked last week about how Nehemiah's calling by God really had two parts to it, and that reflects itself in the book of Nehemiah in the first and second parts, and we're right at that point of transition. The first part of what Nehemiah was called to do was rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, and the city had sat pretty well uh, destroyed and desolate, and it had come to Nehemiah's attention, and the king, uh, King um, Artaxerxes, who he worked for, allowed him to go back. And so he rebuilt the walls, and that was, happened in the first seven chapters. We're transitioning um, tonight in that seventh chapter, which is the transition, into the other part of his calling, which is really the overarching uh, aspect of what God's asking him to do, and that is putting back together the people of God, at this time the Jews. Not only were they destroyed physically, but they had been dispersed into exile, which had a dramatic impact on their, their unity and their identity. So we're going to be studying that tonight. So let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we come tonight in this very powerful book, at this powerful moment in the history of your people. Lord, help us see the truth that you have for us in this study, in this passage. Help us see how you, how you start to build the foundation again of your people. And during this Holy Week, this week of Easter, remind us of how you built your people, the new people, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us reflect on the foundations of what it means to be your child through your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be starting off in chapter 7 and verse 5. It's going to start off with a, a census. And we're going to see right away that Nehemiah says that God called him or, or instructed him to take a census. If you're a, a student of the Old Testament, you know that sometimes taking a census can get you in trouble, as it did with David. But here there's a specific reason of why God is having Nehemiah take this census and we're going to be looking at that right now. So let's turn to, again, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5. God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramaiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehem, Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 652. The sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Babai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Adin, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 
328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Harif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, the men of Kiriath Jerim, Shephirah and Beeroth, 743, the men of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Mikmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 123, the men of the other Nebo, 52, the sons of the other Elam, 1254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, the sons of Senah, 3930, the priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Amer, 1052, the sons of Pashur, 1247, the sons of Harim, 1017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kadmiel, of the sons of Hodava, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Asapha, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Agaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gadel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Reaiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Basai, the sons of Munim, the sons of Nefoshaim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakapha, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bazlith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisra, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Atipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sephereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pekareth Hazabaim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel-Melah, Tel-Hasha, Sherab, Adan, and Emer. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Delaiah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobaiah, the sons of Akaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 miners of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 
and 2,200 miners of silver, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 miners of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel, lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Okay, so they, uh, Nehemiah has a census taken. And, and if you look at this, and remember we're talking about Ezra and Nehemiah really being two parts of one work. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, originally they were just one book. Uh, if you look in, in Ezra 2, you'll see virtually the same census. Though we think actually uh, Nehemiah's census came before Ezra's. Why take a census? What is so important about taking a census right now that God would call Nehemiah to do it? Well, really, there's, there's three reasons. One, as we saw as we went through this, to see that the people that are being included into the people of God are actually the people that, from their genealogy, are descendants of those that went into exile. A lot has happened in the last 50 to 70 years. And, and so we're seeing that these are the people of the land, and so the census is taken. And also in that process, they find out which families, and so they can look at land uh, that's, that was pri- previously owned or that they're assigned to. So that's part of the process. Another part of the process is first taxation to get a roll of everyone so that they can start the process of of uh, doing the temple tax again, now the temple's rebuilt, and also the taxation for the local government that's going to be uh, developed under this. Before, remember, when they were in exile, they had no local government. They had no identity. They had no temple. They would have had a synagogue, and then they would have had the either Babylonian and then Persian uh, government around them. Here, they're going to create their own government, and so in the process, they take a census, much as we're doing this year in the United States, to figure out uh, who the people are, where they are, and uh, be in a position uh, to uh, tax them. Uh, the, the other thing is, is to understand a little bit of really who's come back. Uh, we know that we're told 42,360 are who have come back, in addition to 7,000 servants, so a total of 50,000, but of the exiled Jews... Uh, 43,000 or 42,000 and some change. We know that's less than half of the people that are out there. Now, we don't really know how many got taken in exile because we don't know how many died and we don't know during the various uh, deportations for sure how many people. We know all the, uh, all the leadership, all the families of, of high standing and all the middle class got taken. But we're not sure how many that is. And then we don't know how many in exile, how big the families got. Two people went into exile. They had a family. Their kids had kids. Their kids had kids. And so we're not really sure how big that pool of people out in captivity or in exile there is coming back. But we know there's, there's a smaller, way smaller number that came back than stayed. And Why? Why would a good Jew who's been in exile, and, and we read in Psalms, we see in Ezekiel, this desire to be in the promised land, why would they not come back? Why would they choose to stay where they're at? 
Well, we have to remember what God said to them back under Jeremiah uh, a long time prior, leading up to the destruction in 586. God said through Nehemiah, or Jeremiah, he said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons. Give your daughters to marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply and do not decrease. So when God sent them into exile, said, you're going to be there a while. Settle in. In fact, many of the people he's talking to through Jeremiah are never going to come back because they're going to die in exile. He's saying, this is of me. This is punishment. Go to to Babylon. Go to exile and create a new life. And most of them did that exact thing. So when we ask, why didn't they come back? Well, many of them, quite frankly, this is the only life they knew was in Babylon. They got relocated by before they were even born or by their parents when they were young and they grew up there and that's their life and that's what they know. You know, my, my family was a not from Iowa. I, I got relocated across the Iowa border into, to Elbert Lee, which is nine miles into Minnesota, but I was a Minnesotan, a fierce Minnesotan. I didn't want to be no Iowan, yet that's where most of my relatives were. And my parents' relocation stamped on me being a Minnesota. Now, I lived all over the place because of different jobs, but at the end of the day, Minnesota was always home and has been for the last 20 years. For these people, that's all they knew, for many of them. Another thing is many of those that got taken into exile prospered extremely uh, well. In fact, many of them got into government. We'll find many people of Jewish name in the local and and providential government, uh, state government, and holding significant positions. Many of them were very uh, prosperous monetarily, ran businesses, developed trades, did all that. They didn't want to leave all that to come back. And then third, quite frankly, a lot of people knew what shape Jerusalem and Judea were in. Bad, terrible, houses destroyed, agriculture not doing really well, the city's a total mess. So I got it good here. Why in the world would I go back there? So they stayed. The only problem with staying is there's no temple where they're at. No temple means no cultic worship, no sacrifices, no way to to observe the Day of Atonement, no way to, to properly observe the Passover. These fundamental things of the Jewish faith, they were... Uh, not a part of unless they make pilgrimages and some did every once in a while so that was the trade-off being in my promised land being by the temple being in a position where i'm in a group of people reestablishing the identity and the covenant with god or staying out in the good life but still being able to call myself a jew so that's what they did And quite frankly, it becomes very significant by the time we get to the New Testament. All those people that didn't come back, that stayed out in the diaspora that we call it, the purple people that are dispersed, the Jews that are dispersed out in the Roman Empire, that have built up quite large communities in some of these areas, 
they become, quite frankly, the people that we just saw in our study of Acts that Paul went to see when he went to the synagogues. When he went out on his missionary journeys, he'd go to the synagogues and, and preach to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, often they would reject it, but the God-fearers, as we talked about, the God-fearers that came to that synagogue, the God-fearers that were drawn to what the Jews were doing, who didn't become full Jews, were many and most of, we believe, the people that first came to faith. So when you look at these cities that, that uh, Paul went to, and he went to the synagogue, and most of the Jews were rejected, but the God-fearers would not. And they'd become the foundation of that church in that city. And these God-fearers were attracted to the faith that was there because the Jews never returned to Jerusalem and took the faith out into the Mediterranean world. Now, God did not command them to go back. Uh, We find nowhere in the Bible that it tells us what they did in staying was wrong or that it was sinful or disobedient to God. And it had a huge, again, impact on the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we fast forward 500 years and we see what, again, God is doing through Paul and uh, the like in preaching the good news out in the Mediterranean area. A couple other things to find of interest here. They had to prove uh, that they came from the lineage of those that left. And, And we see in Verse 61, that uh, some could not prove it. Now, we're not told what happens when they couldn't prove it, if they, if they couldn't participate. Now, some of the priests couldn't prove it, and that meant they couldn't be priests. And that's fascinating that if you couldn't, the lineage of priests from the Levitical tribe is still so strong that if you can't prove you, you've come from the proper lineage, you still can't be a priest. And priests are very important now because we have the, we have the temple. Out in exile, priests, quite frankly, didn't matter. There's no temple. There's no need for a priest. There weren't priests in synagogues. Remember, the synagogues are the scribes and, and the Pharisees who are going to become the rabbis, who are going to become uh, the, the new teachers of the law. But now, we've got a temple. Now we have to have priests, and we have to have the right priests, the right priests of the right line and the pure priests. And so we see that some are excluded if they can't prove that they come from the right lineage. And then the other thing is how this seven ends. And again, seven is this transitional chapter where it takes us from rebuilding the walls to rebuilding the people. And we see this transition at the end of seven where it says, and the seventh month had come. The seventh month had come. The most holy, most important month of the year for the the Jews. It's the month of atonement. For all those years, hundreds of years, decades in exile, there was no day of atonement because there was no temple. There was no way to atone for sin. There was no time when the nation could atone for its sins by making a proper sacrifice because there was no temple. Now we're in the seventh month. Now we're going to start over again with God. And we do that with the law, with Scripture. 
We're going to see a sequence over the next three weeks of 8, 9, and 10, where the foundation of Scripture, which is going to lead to confession, which is going to lead to a renewal of the covenant and an acknowledgement of the covenant by the people. In our way of seeing, go to the, the Bible, the Word of God, let it speak to you, cause it to reveal to you sin, confess that sin, and recommit yourself to God through Jesus Christ. Well, that's what they're going to do, minus the Messiah. So let's start with chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Nehemiah 8, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matithaiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. A bunch of things going on here. It's the first time Ezra is uh, making an appearance in Nehemiah. Remind, remember that Nehemiah never appears in the book of Ezra, and Ezra appears in Nehemiah, but only at this point. After the wall's been built, now the Word of God, the Scripture, comes into play, and Ezra makes an appearance in Nehemiah. It's fascinating that the people assembled, and they asked for Ezra to read the Word of God. It's not like Ezra brings the Word of God out and says, okay, listen, you got to listen to this. They asked for it. And so he does that. He comes out and he brings the, the book of the law. And they assemble men, women, and essentially children that can understand. That's almost unbelievable. In fact, normally there would be no women and no children for sure. And it'd be men. But we have men, women, and children. It's as if, no, this is everyone. We're doing something special. We're bringing the people of God together again to bind them together on the Word of God, to renew the covenant, to remind us who we are and why we came back. And so all are assembled. And 
on the first day of the month as they begin this, this pivotal month. And they build this platform. So they obviously are intentional in this process. They build a platform so you can stand up and read to all these people. We got tens of thousands of people. I mean, today we can't speak to 500 without some kind of amplification. Here, tens of thousands of people, and he gets up on this platform, and he opens up the book of the law. Now, what is the book of the law? Well, it can be many things. It can be the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It can be Deuteronomy. It can be parts of the Mosaic law. It can be a number of different things, and we're not sure what exactly he's reading here. We know it's some part of the first five books of the Bible, but if it's a half day, and that's what we're told, that it was a half day, he certainly couldn't have gotten through all five books in half a day. But he is reading the law. He is reading that which God has given them to be able to live with God. Remember, we've said a ton of times, holy God, unholy people, God's chosen them. He chose them to be in relationship with him. And how can they do that? They can do that because he's given them the law. He's told them how to live, and he's told them how to deal with the fact when they fall short of how to live, how they atone for that sin so they can be in relationship with them. And that's what Ezra is reading. Now, on stage with him or on this platform are these individuals, and we're not sure who they are, but they're leaders of some kind. They don't sound like they would be a priest. Their names don't sound priestly. But they're with him as he reads this. And he opens up the book in the sight of all people. Kind of get this, this sense. He's on this platform. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. He gets up, opens up the book, and they all stand. Stand in reverence to what He's about to read the importance, the power, the aspect, the foundational aspect that this has in their lives. They stand. He reads. He reads for hours and hours, and they stand in place for that Sometimes we struggle. Max just read a bunch of names. I thought he did a great job. I mean, I could have done probably a little better job, but, you know, he, he seemed to get a little winded in there for a moment or two. I could have stepped in, but I thought I'd let him read it. <laughs> we struggled with that. That took about four minutes. We struggled with that. Can you imagine standing in the sun for hours, hearing the Word of God read over you? But that's what he did. And when Ezra was done, he, he blessed God. He praised God for his word. And the people all said amen. And they lifted up their hands. And then they bowed down. They bowed down with their faces to the ground. I mean, just get this visualization. They're there, sitting on the ground. Nehemiah gets the word of God, stands up on the platform. They Stand up. He reads them for hours. He praises God. They say amen, raise their hands, and fall to their knees, faces to the ground in worship. What a powerful moment. And while he's reading, there's these other 13 individuals and Levites going amongst the people. Again, 
thousands of people going amongst the people, kind of doing a commentary, kind of helping them understand the law. So while the people are standing in their places, they're walking amongst them, doing kind of a running commentary on what Ezra was reading out of the book of uh, the law. Explain it to them. See, many, they don't have their own book of the law. They don't have their own Bible. They don't have anything. They hear it when it's read to them. Sounds like it hadn't been read to them for a while. We certainly know in exile they would have gotten a, a small portion read once a week in the synagogue, but that's it. And so the power of this being read over them and then having it kind of a running commentary as, as these, these individuals, these students of the, of the law, are going amongst them explaining what God is saying to them through this reading by Ezra. And then they're overwhelmed. They fall their knees. You ever been overwhelmed by Scripture? You ever just, I don't know, taking a big chunk, maybe a whole book, maybe a big book, read it through, and just been literally overwhelmed, brought to your knees, brought to a position where, where you say to God, I cannot believe what I just read. Again, this is a great week for that. I don't know what you're doing this Holy Week. I mean, many people are, have a bit of a more confined and reduced schedule than they normally do. It's a great week to spend some time in the Word. Maybe even like happened here, grab your whole family together. You know, sometimes we think our, our kids, well, they're not going to sit still for it. They've got to have a screen in front of them. They've got to uh, try them. Now, I wouldn't read them, you know, some long genealogy. But I think there's some stuff in the New Testament that might be applicable for Easter that they might find very powerful. You'll never know till you try. So, this is what happened. They read the book, have the book of the law read to them explained as a running commentary, and they generally understood that reading. But we're going to see more as we go on now with verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. It's an interesting section. So the Bible have had, the people have had the, uh, the Bible or the 
book of the law read over them. And they're grieved. They're grieved probably because of their own sin. And they realize how short they've come up in, in keeping the law and how they've sinned against God. And so they're grieved and they're, they're upset and they're, and they're weeping. And, and yet they're instructed not to be grieving. Because this is good news. I mean, it's like this week. We, we're not sure how we're supposed to feel. You know, on Friday, we're supposed to feel bad because Jesus goes across. And then magically on Sunday, we're supposed to feel good because he's risen from the dead. We know on Friday, he's going to rise on Sunday. We can feel bad that our sins were partly the reason that he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross, first and foremost, his obedience to his Father. Again, we try to make it all about us. It's all about God. But our sins are part of the mix that required atonement. So we feel bad. But we're never to feel bad. We're supposed to know that what God has done, He's done out of love. Now, we can, we can feel convicted. We can feel guilt of sin. But Easter's always Easter. There's not a minute that we live today that Easter hasn't happened. And we are to live our lives with an understanding that we sin and that we are to deal with that sin. But we always live, if we are in Jesus Christ, if we've turned to Jesus Christ, we always live every day in Easter. And they are God's people. They are God's people every day of the week. When they were destroyed by the Babylonians and sent into exile, they were still God's people. That's what God was saying to them through Jeremiah. Go build some houses. You're still my people. I'm destroying you. I'm right now disciplining you, but you're still my people. Don't ever forget that. And as the word is read over them, they're convicted. They mourn. But they are to be joyful. Sometimes I, people will talk about their sin, and, and that an awareness of sin is so incredibly important. We have to understand that God is trying to constantly teach us to sin less. But let's never do a disservice to what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. Let us never lose sight of the fact that there's nothing we can do to earn that. There's nothing we can do to somehow add to what Jesus Christ did. We are to have the joy of the Lord. Go to Philippians over and over and over. The word joy or the word joyous is used. Happy, as you've heard me say a ton of times, I don't care who's happy, who's not happy. That is such a human whatever's going on in the moment emotion. But joy? Yeah. Joy is one of those things. 
As long as we have Easter every day, we have joy every day. As long as we're in Jesus Christ, as long as we've turned to Him, as long as we've seeking to have Him both as Savior and Lord of our lives, there's no day that we aren't living under His atonement, His sacrifice, His new life. That's what they're being reminded. Guilt is a very functional feeling. It causes us to question what we're doing. But it never destroys joy if we truly know Jesus Christ. Let's go on. Let's see what happens in uh, starting with verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. Nehemiah 9. As you can imagine, I love this passage. What happens here is they go from having the word read over them to actually studying the word. What happens is the head of the households uh, go there because they can't have all the people studying, just too many. So the head of the household, representative, goes, studies the, the law, and then goes back and teaches it. There's a huge difference, as I've said many times, between reading Scripture and studying Scripture. I've read parts of the New Testament over and over, yet I really did not understand it until I studied it. Until I studied it with aids like commentaries and an understanding of context and an understanding of the historic meta-narrative that goes through the whole Bible. As I said a ton of times, if I gave you a manual to something, let's say a, a car, and you never saw the car, didn't have any understanding of what car we were talking about, and you picked up that manual, and the manual's 200 pages long, and you went to a page 137 and just opened it up and started reading, you wouldn't understand. You don't know what kind of car, you don't know, have any idea whether it's an automatic, a standard, what kind of engine, what it's got in it. You, you just start reading, yet that's what we do with the Bible all the time. 
We don't know the context. We don't know what's happening. We don't even know where we're at sometimes in the storyline. And there is a storyline in the Bible. Again, the Bible is not 66 books just crammed together with some nice things to say. It is a beginning and an end, a book of unity. And we have to know where we are in the story. You can't jump into Ephesians and have no idea what's going on and think you're going to understand it. You can get what it says, but to understand how it fits into the overall story of God and His people. Yeah. So they study. They study with the help of of Ezra and the scribes. and, And really, this is the beginning, as we've talked before. When you meet a modern rabbi today, This is where it started right here. Ezra is seen as the beginning of the scribal rabbinic tradition, which takes over in 70 when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, and the Pharisees slowly become what becomes the rabbis. Synagogues are what it's all about because there is no temple. And all this then goes into what is a modern-day rabbi. And it's all seen as starting right here with the study of these words as Ezra teaches these head of these households what the Word of God says. Again, he's just read it to them, but they need to understand at a deeper level. We all need to understand at a deeper level. Reading the Bible is not studying the Bible. Knowing some words is not knowing the meaning of the Bible. And it's interesting, as he does that, they discover something. There's this festival, it's a festival of booths or the festival of of tabernacles, basically a booth or tabernacles thought of as a tent. And they've been, we know from Ezra that they've been observing this festival, but they haven't been observing the entirety of the festival. They've left left off the booths or the tabernacle part of it. And that's a critical part. I mean, the food part's good, but this is where they go and they, they build a, te- a tent on their property. It can be on the top of their roof or someplace that they have space. And this is to remind them of how God took care of them in the wilderness. In the wilderness, when they didn't deserve to be taken care of. Remember, they're in the wilderness because they refused to go into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. So he put them into the wilderness, yet he took care of them, and that's what this festival's about remembering how they tabernacled or tented or camped in the wilderness for 40 years and how God provided. If you can imagine being in a town or even in Jerusalem and seeing all these homemade uh, tents or structures on top of uh, homes or sides or yards or whatever, all over the place, all looking different. All reminding the people of the faithfulness of God, even when they were not faithful. Even when they were totally, completely disobedient. He was still faithful. And here in this time, this somewhat exodus-type experience, when they're brought out of exile, when they're being recreated as a people. It's fitting that their attention is drawn to this aspect of this festival that they somehow had forgotten about. 
You ever read scripture and, and something catches your eye? Maybe you read scripture and it causes you to weep or you read scripture and it makes you joyous or you read scripture and say, wow, I think I've been doing that wrong or I didn't know that or I'd never seen that before. I, I read scripture all the time and I, and I see things that I go, oh, I've read this before, but I, I never really saw this or I didn't see it that way. That's really powerful. And that's when we know the Holy Spirit is, again, that big word, illuminating the Word of God to us, the reader. Well, they've got the first part. They've had the Word read over them. They've studied it. They're starting to make corrections based on that study. They're starting to bring it down through the ages into the children. And this is going to have a powerful effect. This is going to show them where they've gone wrong. It's going to show them where they need to get right with God. And that's what's going to happen in the next chapter, which we'll cover next week, chapter 9. That confession, and that will then, after that, in chapter 10, lead them to reaffirming the covenant with God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, again, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power it has in our lives. Lord, just give us a desire to read your word. Give us a desire to know you better through it. Convict us. But also understand the joy we are to live with by knowing the relationship we have you with you through your son Jesus Christ as your word tells us. And this week, this holy week, this week we remember the perfection that you brought about through Jesus Christ's life, death and resurrection. May no one, may none of us be left the same as we go to your word. It's in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior's name we pray. Amen.